0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 79 of SAMA. SAMA is a program where we invite an expert to talk about their area of expertise. And this week, we're delighted to have Dr. Darren Ingalls with us. He's going to talk to us about Lyme disease and how you can fight it. Dr. Darren Ingalls is a respected leader in natural medicine with numerous publications, international lectures, and more than 25 years' experience in the healthcare field it's hard to believe he's old enough to have that much experience in this field but there you go now he's a member of the american association of naturopathic physicians the american association of integrative medicine the international lyme and associated diseases society the american academy of environmental medicine and many state associations his practice focuses on environmental medicine with special emphasis on chronic immune dysfunction, including Lyme disease, what we're going to talk about today, autism, allergies, asthma, pandas, recurrent or persistent infections, and other genetic or acquired immune problems. His practice is comprised of mostly, sorry, of both children and adults, and he uses diet, nutrients, herbs, homeopathy, immunotherapy, the good stuff, to help us patients achieve better health. So I'm so excited to have you with us, Darren. Welcome aboard.
1: Oh, well, thank you much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Now, it does actually surprise me how, ma- how many associations you're involved with. You're obviously a person that's got their heart, that you're very passionate about what you do. How did it all start?
1: Oh, well, gosh, uh, boy, that goes a long time ago. Well, I was actually a clinical microbiologist before I was a doctor. I worked at a teaching hospital in Chicago for one of the local medical schools. Yes. And uh, I sat at the bench and I know if you got your blood drawn or peed in a cup, you know, that came to me. I was the guy that was doing all these tests to figure out if you had an infection, if you had an autoimmune problem. So I got a very broad background in immunology and infectious diseases through that work. And I love the work, but uh, it's a kind of job where you're very limited in what you can do and felt the need that I wanted more. I wanted to know more about people. So I applied to uh, medical school. And strangely, my path was headed down towards becoming a medical doctor. And really through some uh, personal experiences I had, uh, realized that that was really not my path and found naturopathic medicine. It just made a lot of sense where you know the interest was really getting to the root cause of the problem and not just doing a lot of superficial Band-Aid therapies, which I was seeing in conventional medicine. So I ended up going to naturopathic medical school, and from there, I did a residency, and then I started learning more about environmental medicine, which really pretty much ties into any kind of chronic health condition. The impact of what you eat and what you're exposed to and how it affects your body was obviously uh, significant for just about everything. So I started to, you know, become part of the American Academy of Environmental Medicine where they teach a lot of these kind of things. And then in 2002, I got bit by a tick and got Lyme disease. So Gosh. that was my, my introduction to Lyme disease. And I was fairly new to the state of Connecticut where, you know, Lyme is named after Lyme Connecticut for people who don't know. So I was really in the hotbed of Lyme disease. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I got classic Lyme disease. And uh, I treated it the way that everyone else treated it with, you know, antibiotics. And really after four days of treatment, I felt perfectly fine. I just happened to get infected about three weeks before I opened my own business. And for anyone who's ever opened their own business, they know what it's like when you open that you're Uh, kind of doing everything. and so I worked long hours and really burning the candle at both ends. And about eight months into that, I started to relapse and became symptomatic again. So I went back on antibiotics and it didn't. Really help, and I changed antibiotics, and it didn't help. And it really went through about nine months of changing antibiotics and was actually getting worse. I had lost a lot of weight, my gut was a wreck, I just felt horrible. So, I was fortunate to have found a Chinese uh, doctor in New York City uh, who's from China, had trained there, but uh, very skilled in both Western and Chinese herbal medicine. And he started treating me with Chinese herbs, and within a matter of weeks, I was 85% improved. So it was my own reminder that I kind of had to come back to my naturopathic roots and really start examining what I was doing for myself, to myself, that was, you know, kind of stopping me from getting better. So once I really started paying attention to that and, you know, I was taking herbs, really changed the way I was living my life, sleeping better, you know, really taking care of the terrain, uh, that it still took about two years. And really, it was about, uh, about a year and a half into it that I started working with a homeopath. And, uh, homeopathy, I kind of give credit for being the last thing that really got me to a point where I was symptom free. So, and it was really the collection of everything I had done for myself. And then I started applying that to my patients who had Lyme and other types of chronic infections and found, wow, you know, this stuff works too. So, you know, I had that, that professional experience and I had my own personal experience, which really kind of helped mold how I take care of people now.
0: Wow. That's quite a story. Um, <laughs> okay. i uh, the first thing, uh, oh, I've forgotten. The first I was going to ask. I will the second thing now. The um, doctors, when you were saying he started with your allopathic studies, um, do they discourage you from being, from having empathy to patients? Because what I'm, what I'm getting from your talk is that you've got a great, you know, you've got you, you've got a great desire to um, help people, rather than just you know, fix their problem, you also want to sort of improve their lives. Um, did you find that they, they tended to discourage connections between the doctor and the patient?
1: Well, you know, at the time when I worked in the hospital, I think, you know, that was the, the nature of allopathic medicine. I think that uh, that sort of connection with people was really kind of discouraged you know, for fear of transference and that they felt, I think it interfered with the doctor patient relationship. And I kind of felt quite differently. I think of like the old school country doctor that got to know the patient, got to know the family, got to know the dynamic of the yes. family. Yes. And, you know, how do you care for people when you don't really understand them? Precisely. so Ironically, when I worked in the hospital, I worked in pathology, and if anyone who's in the medical field knows, uh, at least in the United States, pathologists tend to be uh, come from different countries, so everyone I worked with had come from somewhere other than the United States, and therefore they had grown up with a culture of different styles of medicine. I worked with a doctor from India, a doctor from Iraq, a doctor from Colombia, a doctor from Japan, and they were all very open-minded because, again, they had grown up in a different system of medicine. So They were actually very encouraging for me. In fact, none of them, strangely, out of the four pathologists I worked with, none of them actually told me to become a medical doctor. They okay. had seen how things were shifting, at least in the American medical system. They mm-hmm. said you know, it's changing a lot and not in a good way. And they were all actually very encouraging for going to naturopathic medicine. So uh, it, it really all kind of worked out pretty well.
0: Yes, yes. Now, when you first got bitten by that tick, you took a course of antibiotics. Um, what was the time between the bite and you starting the antibiotics? So,
1: I well, you know, I don't know exactly when I got bit. I got bit on the back of my leg. I couldn't see it. I didn't know I had the bite. Uh, I just remember from the time I became symptomatic, it was probably about two or three days. I had a terribly high fever. I started getting joint pain. And I had never experienced really anything like this before. Yes. Uh, and I was actually to the point where I was getting sicker and sicker. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I really need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I did have meningitis when I was in college. And I thought, well, this doesn't feel the same, but no. similar enough. Yeah. So yes. I uh, was getting ready to go to the hospital. And actually, a friend noticed that I had a big bullseye on the back of my leg. Oh. I said, okay, well, I can skip the hospital now. I know what it is. Yes. And I uh, went to the walk-in clinic, and they gave me antibiotics. Yes. And it was it really, four days into the antibiotics I was one hundred percent symptom free Yes, so I finished the 21 days of doxycycline anyway because that's what was recommended mm-hmm. uh, but in retrospect I think the treatment was too short yes. and I think again I wasn't doing the right things taking care of myself so it really was the perfect storm of probably not adequate treatment and all the other life factors that were interfering with my health
0: okay I just remind of all our viewers um, if you're watching this online just if you're on Facebook type in the questions under the video if you're with us on the Zoom uh, platform, just type in the messages and questions in the chat section. And Monique, I'll ask your question very shortly. Now, yep. um, it's pretty textbook what you've done. You've, you've found you had a tick bite, and then you straight away, as soon as you realized you um, took your course of antibiotics, but that didn't resolve the problem, which is a bit of a concern. Now, you've gone through all this. If you you didn't have Lyme and you're bitten by a tick now, what would your course of action be with all the experience? Uh,
1: Yeah, with everything I know now, if I were to get infected again, I would have started on herbs right away.
0: Herbs? Uh, I find
1: herbs are incredibly useful. They don't cause the same degree of damage that you get with antibiotics. And, you know, again, now years of experience and lots and lots of research You know, I think what a lot of people don't really understand is that, you know, Lyme in particular has the capacity to damage your mitochondria. And these are parts of your cells that create energy and thrive metabolism. But we know that a lot of antibiotics also damage the mitochondria. So when when fatigue is part of your problem, boy, Mm. it's really hard to overcome that when you've got a disease that causes the problem. And now the antibiotics complicating that problem. So in retrospect, I would have gone back on herbs. And I I now use herbs with my patients who have acute Lyme, and I find they work beautifully.
0: Okay, so you would not take antibiotics, you take herbs instead? Absolutely. Wow. And is there any particular herb which is particularly effective?
1: Well, there's a few different herbs, and I think, you know, depending on whether someone gets infected with Lyme or Lyme plus one of the co-infections, Uh, it does vary just a little bit. But uh, I mean, some of the most effective herbs, you know, Artemisia is a highly effective herb against Lyme and a lot of co-infections, particularly Babesia. Uh, Coptis, which is a Chinese herb, it's a root. Uh, Coptis is a very broad spectrum sort of antimicrobial. There's an herb that they use a lot in Chinese medicine that I'm a big fan of called Hattunia. And again, Hattunia has very good antimicrobial effects. So between Coptus, Etunia, and Artemisia, those three are really effective at addressing a lot of different uh, Lyme and co-infections. So those are probably my three top herbs for acute Lyme.
0: Right. Um, okay, well, there's a, been a few questions come through, so I'll, I'll um, now, uh, Monique um, uh, Gagnon asked um, if you've tried hyperbaric chamber treatments before.
1: Uh, I personally never did hyperbaric Uh, at the time I got infected. It wasn't readily available in my area and I didn't have a chamber in my office. Uh, You know, my experience with hyperbaric has really been a mixed bag and I'll say probably more people don't benefit or get worse than do benefit. Um, So uh, in the United States anyway, hyperbaric chambers are not as accessible for most people. Uh, So for that reason, unless you happen to own a chamber, uh, around here, we have one or two centers that you can go to. It's very expensive here in the United States. Usually, they charge about 150 150 U.S. dollars per dive, and you're going to need several dives, you know, to get the clinical benefit. So, for most people, it just becomes cost prohibitive.
0: Wow, uh, um, a comment and a uh, question from Carmen Walker. Um, she's from Australia. Um, she yep. says that Australians who have Lyme um, they generally get it from fleas and not so much from ticks. And um, she says that they have been using maritime pine extract
1: with yeah. good results. Plus other yeah, foods. like pycnogenol, pic- yeah. Well, you know, w- with herbs, there are so many different herbs you can use. And, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned some of the ones I use more frequently. If, again, if you go into the literature and look at herbs that are have antimicrobial effects, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of them. You know, I know in Australia, I'm working with several Aussies, and uh, you know, I know that the government has taken the position that there is no Lyme, no, which this... is <laughs> the dumbest thing in the world. And I, I think I read something from one of the government organizations. You know, we've tested all the ticks, and there's no Lyme. But I also know that there are not – we know that each continent has a different strain of Borrelia. In the United States, we have Borrelia burgdorferi, Borrelia miyamotai. Uh, if you go to Europe, it's Borrelia – uh, Garini eye or Borrelia afzelii it's different in Asia so there's probably a different strain in Australia would be my guess and I I again I don't know the details but I'm I'm quite sure they're probably looking for the wrong strain anyway uh, but yeah in terms of fleas you know we know from some of the research out of Europe that you know ticks are not the only vector that transmit Lyme we know that fleas and mosquitoes have that capacity as well yeah, you know it- in the United States, Sorry. Okay, in the United States, the government here again, kind of doesn't acknowledge that other anything other than a tick can spread Lyme, and yet we've got research that shows otherwise. So, um, you know, we're now getting into the politics of Lyme more than the medicine. But um, yeah, I mean, I've seen plenty of people in Australia that have never left Australia that actually test CDC positive to Lyme. So. I don't think it's rocket science to say that Lyme's there, and perhaps it's, yeah, it's being transmitted through fleas, and they're just looking at the wrong vector. That's very possible.
0: Isn't it scary that mosquitoes can also um, be are also a vector for Lyme? I mean, an airborne insect, they can move very fast.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and it makes sense, because even here in the United States, when we look at parts of our country that don't necessarily have a lot of ticks, we still see a fair amount of Lyme disease, but these are areas that are endemic for mosquitoes. I'm yes. like, well, that would make a lot of sense then if mosquitoes yes. are carrying it. And obviously, you know, they share blood meal with humans and in the same way that, that ticks do. So again, it doesn't seem like it's much of a stretch.
0: Why is it so... How can how can authorities deny, A, that there's, there is a Lyme, or B, that it's carried by, by vectors? Like... There's a test for it, right? You, can, you, can, you Presumably, you can test directly for um, the disease. Why don't they yeah. just catch the bugs and see that they've got, the, you know, they've got the, um, the disease in them? Is it not that simple? Is it oversimplistic?
1: Well, you know, when you look at the research here in the United States where they go to certain areas and they, uh, they look at the ticks and they measure the ticks, they'll find that a very high percentage of these ticks do carry Lyme or one of these co-infections. So we know that the organisms there and we know with, you know, climate change and other factors, you know, there's more human tick or human mosquito, human flea interaction, you know, more people are outdoors. Uh, We know in the United States, we've seen ticks migrate away from our sort of our coast and pushing into the central part of the country. So areas that used to not be endemic are now becoming more endemic. And we've got some research showing that birds are actually the biggest thing is the birds are carrying the ticks. Uh, Into these areas, and then the ticks create a new population, and then start infecting the local, the local group of people. So, you know, the political thing—I honestly, I don't completely understand why there's so much denial. You know, we know in the United States there's about 300,000 new cases uh, of Lyme each year, and actually, there was a report that came out—I think in the last week or two—that suggests it's actually closer to 400,000. In the EU, Europe, you know, we know it's more than 65,000 cases. Uh, so it's growing worldwide, and uh, you know I think the the controversy probably relies more around the testing uh, because the testing has a lot of potential flaws and because we 're not really measuring the organism directly in your body, that creates the controversy about well what do these antibody tests really mean? you know does it mean that you had exposure? Is it a cross reaction with some other infection? And I think a lot of government organizations feel like that uh, a positive test isn't necessarily a positive test and that perhaps it's a false positive, it's something else. And then it just kind of goes from there. And I know like the Infectious Disease Society of America, these are our big infectious disease doctors, you know, they've taken the position that chronic Lyme really doesn't exist. You know, they acknowledge there's this thing called post Lyme syndrome. We don't know what it is, but it's not Lyme disease. And You know, a very small percentage of people get it. And yet when you go out there in the real world, we see it's actually a fair number of people. It's not a small percentage. It's a lot of people who end up with, you know, this post-Lyme syndrome or what we kind of collectively call chronic Lyme. And there's got to be an explanation why. Yes. So, you know, I kind of see Lyme now where HIV was in the early 80s, where, you know, if we ignore it long enough, maybe it'll just go away. But Mm -hmm. we have all evidence pointing it's not going away. It's only getting worse. It's infecting more people. And, you know, we've got to take better strategies to figure out why it's infecting so many people and how we can, you know, help the people who are already, you know, infected.
0: Right. Um, and consider things like, does it, can you be immunized in some way against it, I guess? Why, well, why you is- know, we
1: had a, we had a vaccine uh, that was out very briefly uh, quite a while ago. It was only on the market for two or three years. Uh, it was very ineffective. And actually, they had a lot of complications. Uh, the drug company says they pulled it off the market because of poor sales, but we know that there was more to that story, that uh, it actually wasn't working very well, and it actually made a lot of people very sick. So I know, I know that there are drug companies out there that are trying to develop a newer Lyme vaccine. Uh, in fact, one of the companies I work with that has a Lyme test, the guy that developed the test is actually a vaccinologist. He was trying to find a vaccine for dogs. And part of the complication is because there's so many different strains of Borrelia you've got to find something that's common to all the strains for a vaccine to be effective. And I don't know that they've really found that, but he did find this one thing that was helpful in identifying Lyme. So instead of turning it into a vaccine, he turned it into a lab test. So we have a test here available in the United States that looks at all the different strains of Borrelia, which is a little bit different when the, some of the other labs are doing so um, it's, I know it's something that the, the drug companies are working on. I have no idea how effective it may be if it does ever come out, but uh, our previous experience with it was pretty, uh pretty poor.
0: Is lime? is, why is Lyme spreading now? Why, we've been here on the for a long time. Why is it now yeah. going very rampant through population? Yeah.
1: The World Health Organization came out with a paper on this, and really it's climate change. You know, the fact that things that used to kill the ticks off don't kill the ticks off. The tick population keeps exploding, and I would imagine that would apply to fleas and mosquitoes. You know, any of these insect vectors, that the natural things that would keep them under control are not in control. You know, we know in the United States that ticks uh, are, are eaten by possum. So a lot of the other animals that are natural predators for ticks, their population is diminishing. So the things that would normally eat the ticks don't eat the ticks. The warmer weather allows the ticks to proliferate more readily. And uh, again, we've just got more human uh, tick or flea or mosquito interaction. So again, that combination over the last you know, few decades seems to have been a driving factor on why we're seeing more Lyme worldwide. Right. Gosh.
0: Well, um, there, is there an association between fungus and your body? and Lyme, uh, does the fungus need to be within your body for Lyme to take a foothold for the Borrelia to kick in or does it, is it just independent and, and fungus just makes it worse?
1: Yeah, it- you know, that's a great question. And uh, I was talking with uh, Dr. Richard Fry, he runs a lab here in the US and mm-hmm. he's been doing some really interesting work where he's putting people's blood under a microscope. And some of the thing that's coming back on a lot of people who've at least clinically been diagnosed with chronic Lyme is that they have a tremendous amount of biofilm in their blood, but they also have a lot of fungus. Yes. And he's finding that when you started approaching it more from an antifungal standpoint, that people are getting better than just treating the Lyme by itself. So, I mean, it's a great question. I don't know if we have the the perfect answer, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be surprised if we find that there's some underlying factor, whether it's fungus or fungus plus mycotoxins, plus something else, that set the stage. That when you get Lyme, it just becomes a lot worse. You know, we know that Lyme isn't a new bug. It's been around for more than 5,000 years. You know, we pulled this out of an iceman from Austria, you know, 5,300 years ago. So something has changed in the way our body is interacting with this bug that's made us more sensitive, more reactive to it. So uh, I don't know if it's fungus specifically or perhaps some other factor, but I think if I tested everybody in the United States, we would find a pretty large percentage of people that show evidence of having had exposure to Lyme, they don't all get Lyme disease. You know, this bug is probably more normal than we think, but something has changed for that percentage of people who get sick from it, that it's, it's triggering these kind of symptoms. So I think, you know, approaching it from not just, we need to go in and kill the bug. You know, we need to fix the terrain. We need to look at the whole body and yes. we need to deal with the immune system, the gut, stress, the mind, all of that's really, I think, makes the big difference.
0: Okay. Um, a question from Amanda Litcher. She's asking. Now I'll rephrase this question: uh, Do herbs take longer to um, do they take longer to work or reach the effectiveness than antibiotics? Um, and can no. you take both? A, a, no.
1: No. Is, is no. Not really. I mean, the one thing and again, it really depends on the herb. Uh, like you know, we know that some herbs actually have a relatively short half life. So when you take them, you have to take them a little bit more frequently, but in terms of seeing their peak concentration, I mean, even within a matter of days, you're going to hit the peak on most herbs. So I've heard this argument from people that, well, herbs just aren't as effective as antibiotics. They don't get absorbed as well. Uh, And that comes from people who aren't herbalists. (laughs) I think anyone who knows (laughs) herbs well and studies the pharmacology of how herbs work, know that they generally get absorbed quite well, very effective. So again, I haven't seen any clinical difference in my patients of treating them, especially with acute Lyme, with herbs versus when they were on antibiotics. So.
0: Right, and uh, Monique um, Kagnon asks a question, are your herbs um, a good choice for chronic Lyme? If yeah, I Lyme?
1: actually use the same herbs. I dose it maybe a little bit different between acute uh, and chronic, yes. but in terms of the herbs themselves, because the fundamental thing that you're trying to accomplish doesn't really change whether it's acute or chronic. You know, you're still trying to lower the microbial load. You're trying to reduce inflammation. You're trying to improve circulation. You know, these fundamental things that we're trying to to achieve is is really the same. So, no, basically, yeah, the herbs are the same. It's just the dosing might be a little bit different.
0: Okay. Um, Now we're going to talk about quality of life. You've been bitten by a tick. Is it possible through herbs to eradicate EBV and other Borrelia from your body through herbs alone? eliminate?
1: Well, I, again, I think, you know, herbs are part of it. I I wouldn't say the herbs alone without maybe doing some of this other work. Again, if you've got a chronic gut problem and you're taking herbs to just treat the infection and you haven't addressed the fundamental gut, if you've got food allergies or something like that, you might find that they're not as successful. So I just think of herbs as being part of the overall strategy to deal with these chronic infections. You know, something like Epstein-Barr, CMV specifically, you know, once you get exposed to these viruses, you will never get rid of them. They are part of you. Uh Herpes virus do not go away. Uh The Uh difference is, does the virus, again, overgrow, start to create symptoms where in most cases it's just there with you. It doesn't bother you. You don't bother it. You live very harmoniously together. So we see this with, you know, Epstein-Barr. We see it with Strap. We see it with other microbes that are part of our normal uh, milieu, so to speak. So it's really a function of, again, how do we teach our immune system, teach our body to live with it in the right way so that it's not overreacting, not triggering symptoms. And that's more than just killing the bug. I mean, I could go in with antivirals, whether they're herbal or, or conventional medicines. That might bring the viral load down a little bit. But again, if you haven't really addressed some of these other issues going on with people, you might find that you know, you're kind of spinning in circles.
0: Okay. So you've, you've got, you're carrying the viruses in your body and you're addressing them through herbs and other treatments but as your body ages will you need to change the treatments that you're doing change the herbs that you're doing because your body is slowing down metabolism is slowing yeah you want to maintain the quality of life in, in the later years as well are there special precautions you must take as, as one ages
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I talk about this very specifically in my book about how you dose for children, how you dose for adults and how you dose uh, dose for adult pe- or older people, because you're right, metabolism changes, cellular turnover changes. You kind of have to shift everything. I mean, you can still potentially use the same herbs, but you might have to shift, you know, how you dose it, which combinations most appropriate. Uh, so, yeah, there are some changes that happen with uh, with age. Uh, but by and large, the kind of things we're doing is, again, I think still fundamentally the same. It's just making those little fine-tuned uh, tweaks to adjust for, you know, each age group.
0: Okay. If a child gets a bite from a tick, um, and a, a very young child, for example, would you do the same approach with the herbs as you would uh, I
1: do. Yeah, I use different herbs, so I use a lot of liquid tinctures in young children. Uh, who can't swallow capsules, and again, there's a specific dosing schedule that you can mix them in water, they drink it, and again, clinically, I find they work very, very well. You know, I, when people come in with true acute Lyme disease, where we know they got infected in the last, you know, week or two, you know, there may be an appropriate use there of antibiotics, and I have used antibiotics on occasion, but, you know, my conversation with the family is like, look, you know, here's your options. Uh, I think we make that decision together, And some parents are completely adamant about not using antibiotics. Other parents are really very much for using it. It's fine. If we're going to use antibiotics, we've got to make sure we protect their gut and do all the appropriate things while they're on that therapy. Uh, If we choose we're going to do herbs, we're going to give it this amount of time. I expect to see this level of clinical improvement. And if we're not seeing improvement, then we need to change gears quickly. So it really is just about medical management. But... Uh, I think, you know, as a practitioner, we just have to have that that conversation with our patients about what they're willing to do, what they feel comfortable doing, because the mindset is also critically important. If someone believes something's not going to (laughs) work, you know, it might not work as well as you'd like. So uh, I I like having patients on board with what we're doing.
0: (laughs) You're happy happy people are good overall, aren't they? Now, um, (laughs) Carmela Walker's a happy person, she asks. Um she has found that prescribed aspirin is useful, I guess as a blood thinner, uh, for killing the fungus in the body, and then the herbs work better. Um, Have you tried this?
1: Uh, No, I don't use aspirin. Uh, Aspirin has a lot of other potential downsides to it. We do use other enzymes, though, that help break up biofilm and have probably, uh, again, they're sort of a natural uh, anticoagulant. They're not they they work in a different mechanism than aspirin. Aspirin keeps platelets from sticking together. Uh, I use a lot of enzymes like natokinase or lumbrokinase. These are fibrinolytic agents. So if there's a clot that starts to form, it breaks it down faster. So you kind of get the same net effect, but you don't get any of the potential side effects with aspirin. And I've seen people even with low doses of aspirin, depending on how long they take it, can start to develop various gastrointestinal problems. So, uh, I think we're trying to accomplish the same goal, just in a different way.
0: Okay, but in this case, the aspirin was used as a um, antifungal for killing the fungus in the body. Which um, been- I'm not aware
1: of any antifungal effects of aspirin. Okay, I- I've not read anything on that, and I certainly have never used it in that way.
0: Okay, Camber. Um, oh well, she says it works well. So <laughs> um, she's never let me down in the past, so maybe it does. It's quite quite interesting. Now, um,
1: there's a few questions... Now, I'd be curious from Carmela, how are you measuring that?
0: Okay, she'll she'll let us know in due course.
1: Yeah, if you get a chance to respond, I'd be curious how you're measuring the fungal load.
0: Sure, so Carmela, if you can let us know how how you know that it's working for the fungicide, because it's very intriguing. Now, some questions on Facebook have been relayed for us, and I'd like to ask these from you. Oh, what, what different types of oxygen therapy are there? I guess that's pertaining to Lyme. Do you know of the different...
1: Yeah, well, the two probably most common oxidative therapies we see here in the U.S. is either uh, IV ozone therapy or hyperbaric oxygen. And, uh, again, I've had patients who've done both. Again, you know, my experience with most oxidative therapies is that it's really designed, again, just to kill the bug. And in acute Lyme, it probably works pretty well. Uh, Most of the patients I'm working with don't have acute Lyme. They've had it for quite a while. I do not find oxidative therapies work as well in that population I've seen people who go for IV ozone therapy and they feel better while they're on. it. And as soon as they come off it, they don't feel as well. Uh, Again, the United States oxidative therapies by and large are very expensive. So it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I mean, IV ozone, I mean, we have a clinic down the street from me here in Orange County, California that does 10 pass IV ozone, you know, it's $1,500 for one treatment and you're going to require multiple treatments. So uh, it just gets to be very expensive. And again, I think it's just a little short sighted that, if, again, the focus is just on killing the bug, we're missing the broader scope of what we're trying to accomplish for people. So sure. uh, I don't generally recommend oxidative therapies just for that reason, uh, okay. partly for the cost and the the frequency that you have to do them. But I think we have other better ways of managing that.
0: I actually appreciate the way that your mindset has your... your, your you're still being thoughtful for the patient and concerned about the cost of treatments, which I don't often hear (laughs) with the experts I have online. So it's good to see. Now, Mark skills, um, asks a question. It's quite a good one. Um, three plus years and a full brace of ABX later, I'm still having symptoms, although much better. He found that stevia and also rife frequency treatments help a lot. Um, Now do you, regularly achieve remission with your methods? And the big question he asks after this one, do you ever achieve a, few, a full cure?
1: Well, I've had, uh, I mean, myself, I mean, I've, I, would, I would say it was cured. I mean, I went, you know, being completely symptom-free after three years of having terrible symptoms. I've yeah. had patients who've gone completely symptom-free and many of them who've had Lyme for many years. You know, what I see, particularly with the long-term antibiotics, Uh, is again, it's a capacity to potentially damage your mitochondria. It's really hard to get over some of these symptoms if your mitochondria are constantly being damaged. So although it may be addressing some of these other issues, it's not necessarily addressing the totality of everything. And with any Lyme treatment, really, whether it's antibiotics or herbs, you know, when you say partial improvement that gets stuck and it never really gets better, you know, it always makes me wonder, is there something else going on that's unrelated to Lyme? you know, here in the U.S., I find mold is a terrible problem for a lot of my Lyme patients yes. and either they've got mold allergy or mycotoxicity. Right. And the treatment for that of course is completely different. So yeah. if, if I feel like I've gotten, you know, a partial response, but not a complete response, it just raises a red flag for me that maybe there's something unrelated to Lyme that we've sort of missed and I need to go back and start doing other types of testing or evaluation. But in terms of other types of therapies, I mean, Gosh, I mean, Rife, uh, PEMF, a lot of these you know, sort of energetic devices. I mean, I had one patient who had been on six years of continuous treatments between antibiotics, herbs. I mean, you name it, she did it. Yes. And she finally just, uh, and then she used to walk with a cane and uh, had a lot of mobility issues. Mm-hmm. And she finally just said, you know, the heck with it. And she did Rife every day for two years. Yes. I saw her five years later and she was walking perfectly, no cane not a single symptom. Mm. And really at that point, the only thing she had done was rife. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And I think as a patient, and again, I've been a patient, I've done this, you know, you keep trying these different things that resonate well with you. And unfortunately there's no one thing that works well for everybody, Mm. but you know, you try to find that combination of what each person needs and whether it's yeah, mitochondrial support, whether it's nutritional support, whether it's gut support, whether it's more antimicrobial, you know, often we're really doing a lot of things at the same time. Yes. But the goal is again to really kind of tailor it to the individual and find out what their body you know needs.
0: What's best for them. Yes. Now, Mark skills, he's he's doing what I asked him and sent a few questions. Now, Mark, I'm going to rephrase this question of yours because I don't. I try and avoid brand names if possible. But um, Darren, do you use Any scanning device in your practice as diagnosing people to see whether they, A, have it, B, what strains, and C, the best?
1: Uh, Well, uh, it's illegal in the United States to use these scanning devices to diagnose anything. They are not FDA approved for that. In saying that, I do use electrodermal screening as a tool to help evaluate where people are at with their health.
0: Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be careful. This is funny, you know. Oh, There you go. Um, now, um, uh, Tony Hartman asks, do you have a summary of all helpful herbs? But, but before you answer this one, Darren, in your book collection at the back, I couldn't help but notice that one of your randomly placed books is t- entitled Lime Solution. Now, that, that's, <laughs> I know it would have been by absolute chance and that's random. but
1: It's,
0: <laughs> it's <not laughs> a, a fantastic coincidence we're talking about lime. And who's the author of that book?
1: Yeah, I think I would be the author of that book. So, <laughs> you know, again, I, I as a Lyme patient, you know, I started to realize now having worked with a lot of Lyme yes. people in the United States, mostly, and finding people coming from all over the country that had no help. Yes. And in the United States, because it's so politicized, if you live in an area that's not considered endemic for Lyme, yes. the doctors completely dismiss you. So I wanted to have a book that for people who live in areas where there is no help, that this was a self-help guide that, you know, takes you through step by step. It's really kind of a five-step plan. You know, here's the diet you can follow. Here's some herbs you can take. Here's some nutrients you can use to support your gut. So uh, it really is written for the patient that they can just take control of their own health and kind of follow it on their own.
0: So Tony, your answer will be in that book. We have discussed some of the herbs during the talk already, but they'll be given in specific detail and possibly the effects of each herb within that book that's just yeah, so I do have an
1: entire chapter where I talk about various herbal protocols. I talk about what each of the individual herbs actually does and accomplishes. Uh, I highlight really two specific protocols in my book, uh, but there are many, many, many herbs that you can use. And if you kind of understand what the herbs are trying to accomplish, yes. then it's, it's it's pretty easy to figure out which ones might be helpful.
0: And remember people that are watching, Darren's um been bitten by tech. He's had the symptoms of Lyme and he's overcome them. And he's also an expert in so many fields. So that book will be like a gold mine. What anything that's worth knowing about Lyme will be inside that white book behind him. So and is that book available through Amazon? How how can it? Is. Okay.
1: Yeah, any major book retailer carries it, but I think most people get it through Amazon.
0: Well, I can't think of any reason why yeah. someone wouldn't want to buy that book then. Okay, um, Mark uh, Skills has asked a question, which is um, a good one. Is there a connection between EMF and Lyme? Does, do, you, do you find that people that, w- that are living in areas of high, um, with high field strength, Wi-Fi, whatever, their Lyme is more active? Does it take the energy from the field?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. Well, my observation, though, is that Lyme has the ability to sensitize you. And I've Mm -hmm. seen people after they get infected, they become more sensitive to foods, more sensitive to mold, more sensitive to EMFs. So if you happen to live in an area where there's a lot of EMF pollution, uh, high tension wires, Wi-Fi, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. some people find that it really starts to bother them. I mean, I think as a overall uh, health thing, that yes. I talk about with all my patients is that, how do we manage your EMF exposure yes. So we talked about, you know, turning your router off at night, turning yes. off the wifi on your smartphone or tablet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are different, you know, things you can buy to help protect yourself against that, that exposure. And, you know, one of the things that's happening here in the U S now is they're looking to unroll this 5g. And I think they're looking at Europe too. Yes. And uh, that has completely unknown health consequences, which is a little frightening. So I think anything you can do in your own home anyway to protect yourself against EMF is a good thing for anybody. But I do see a lot of Lyme patients that do become highly sensitized uh, to EMFs. And my guess is that that sensitization probably happened after Lyme. Uh, But, you know.
0: Yes. Right. Now, Tony Hartman again, he's asking a, uh, a wonderful question. And it's a question I'd like to ask as well. Now, is there anything you can do, if you know you're going to be going through an area which has got ticks. Is there anything you can take to help prevent, in the first place, getting Lyme?
1: Well, yeah, the best thing you can do, if you're gonna go in an area where you know Lyme is uh, endemic, uh, certainly wearing lawn clothing is your best protection. You know, protecting your skin from getting exposure to that tick. uh, It's actually very hard for a tick to bite you through your clothing. Uh, It's usually got to be your bare skin. So, when you're out, you know, long pants, long sleeve shirt, even if it's a very hot, you know, humid day, uh, it's still better to protect yourself. Uh, If you're going to be in an area where there's low lying branches, you know, sometimes even wearing a hat can be beneficial. And we've actually got some good research, even from our own government, showing that certain essential oils are actually very effective at warding off ticks. So, we know things like eucalyptus oil, tea tree oil, cedar, sandalwood. We've got a lot of different oils. And there's several companies uh, that make a commercial product that has a mixture of these different oils. So yes. you can spray your clothes, spray a little bit around your skin. It's mm-hmm. safe on the skin, unlike, you know, DEET, which is the common recommended uh, treatment, which is highly toxic. Yes. I never recommend DEET. But mm-hmm. uh, you can use one of these essential oil products, and I think they work really well.
0: And they'll smell nice as well. I can vouch for them. Every single one that you mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Um Now, there are tests that you can take if you've been bitten and it's become inflamed but it hasn't got any ring around it And we'll talk about that just in a little moment yeah um how how, is it do you go to somewhere for testing how where do you go or do you just take the course of antibiotics straight away or herbs straight away just in case um how how does one know whether they've actually been bitten by a pathogen Yeah. yeah
1: Well, if somebody knows they got bit by a tick, you know, for example, if they see a tick, they pulled off themselves. Uh, what I recommend here is that they save the tick. There are several labs out there where you can test the tick okay. and see if the tick carries Lyme or one of these co-infections. Yes. Uh, again, we have several labs here in the U.S. that do it for a pretty inexpensive cost. I start treating them with herbs anyway. My feeling is, you know, we're going to treat you until proven otherwise. Because that time period, if you can catch it early on, your probability of developing chronic Lyme, I think, goes way down. And so we can usually get our report back on the tick within about three or four days. So I'll start people on herbs right away. We'll wait to get the tick report back. Again, it's not perfect. You know, it's not going to necessarily catch every single tick that might actually carry something. But we can at least have that conversation about, okay, do we want to say, look, they're herbs, they're safe, they're not toxic, we're going to stay on a three-week course anyway, just to see how you feel, we'll monitor you. Uh, You know, it can actually take up to 30 days or longer to develop symptoms once you've gotten bitten anyway. And the same is true for making antibodies. You know, testing Mm -hmm. someone early in exposure actually isn't helpful because there's a good chance you'll miss it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You actually have to wait a couple of three weeks to give their immune system an opportunity to actually make antibodies. Mm -hmm. Since at least most of the tests out there are looking at antibodies, you know, there is a very well-known commercial lab in Germany that does cytokine testing, uh, which is actually, I think, even better for early Lyme, because you don't have to wait for the antibodies. The cytokines will go up very quickly. So the LE spot test that this lab does is a better way of early Lyme of trying to pick it up. Uh, And Mm that, I think, is available in most countries around the world.
0: Okay, so don't don't wait for the testing. That kind of answers a question from Kami Braswell. She's wondering to know if you can recommend a lab and Greece, but basically saying don't go there, just just treat it as if.
1: Yeah, and again, I think you know if your decision is to try antibiotics, that might be a different you know situation that you would want to talk to your healthcare provider about. But
0: uh, yes. my feeling
1: is herbs are safe. You know, if I've got someone on, I'm not going to cause any you know irreparable damage. And yes. if it means we at least get them on long enough until we feel confident that they don't have Lyme, yes. they've never exhibited symptoms. So if they've on even for a month and they've had no symptoms at that point, fine, come off and we'll just keep a close eye on you. But uh, the likelihood of them developing something after that fact uh, just goes way down.
0: Um, uh, uh, Teresia has come forward with a factoid. I love factoids. She's... Um saying that the Oregon State University studied 15 to 20 million-year-old amber from the Dominican Republic. I didn't know the Dominican Republic was going back then. And found oldest fossil evidence of Borrelia in a tick. So it's been with us for a while anyway. So it's very, very interesting. And she goes on. Uh, what is your opinion regarding herbal anti-inflammatories and as an effective way of eliminating Lyme and co-infections, rather than antimicrobials, um, and slowing down the bacteria food supply uh, through stopping inflammation, rather than herbal um, antimicrobials uh, causing? Yeah,
1: anti- well, yeah. The mechanism of you know anti-inflammatory, depending on the herb, because certain yes. herbs work under different mechanisms. Some of them are sort of COX-1, COX-2 inhibitors. Other ones are inhibiting prostaglandin production. So the biochemical pathway of even herbal anti-inflammatories does vary. So I would probably argue that a lot of uh, anti-inflammatory herbs don't necessarily stop the food chain of the microbe. And they probably wouldn't be terribly effective at Killing off the organism so you know in in my practice i like to mix herbs that have anti-inflammatory benefits as well as antimicrobial to make sure we're covering the bases on both but i've never i mean just in clinical practice i've never just used anti-inflammatories by themselves so i i I guess i can't say how that would work if i had only done that yes yes
0: i think your multi um, multi multi-angle approach would possibly be better um kim weber Um, is asking the question about the clothing and uh, permethrin. Um, Clothing which has got permethrin embedded into
1: it, into the fire. Yeah, well, you know, permethrin's a toxic substance. Uh, You know, there are natural pyrethroids that they'll use, but permethrin itself is toxic. And uh, I made the mistake, I went to uh, Central America and I bought some of that clothing to protect against mosquitoes when I was there. And I I got sick actually very quickly, you know, they tell you, you can wash it and this and that, but the permethrin actually stays in the clothing for quite a while. Uh, I I agree that it probably is effective, but you have to look at what's the potential effect on your own health. And I think, you know, certainly with, uh, uh, for someone who maybe is very, very healthy and has no issues and they're good detoxifiers, and you're talking about something you might be wearing for an hour or two while you're out in the jungle, that might be fine. Uh, Mm -hmm. For someone who might be more overly sensitive, I would be very cautious. I'd rather, you know, get your own clothing and spray essential oils on it than use the permethrin.
0: Most people don't really realize that their skin is porous and things pass in and they pass out. Right. So so these um, poisons that are in the fabric itself will make its way into your bloodstream.
1: Well, and I realized when I was in Central America that you sweat a lot. It's really hot and humid there. And as you sweat, you know, all that moisture starts liberating, you know, any of the chemicals in the clothing. Yes. And yeah, your skin's is the big sponge. So, you know, I don't know. We know exactly how much of that chemical potentially gets in, but it may be even a little is depending on your threshold too much. So again, why, why take that chance?
0: Exactly. But well, I suppose you can um, wash. What if you washed your clothing in, say, tea tree oil or eucalyptus yeah. oil? That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Totally not. Yeah. And it spills fantastic. Oh, ticks don't like that smell, do they? Yeah.
1: Um,
0: but would the smell be enough? Would the concentration be enough if you added that into your washing in the final rinse?
1: You know, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. My guess is that if you probably added it into your wash itself, it would dilute out the essential oil. Okay. Uh, it probably wouldn't be as effective. Yes. But yeah, I've never tried
0: it. Okay. Now, Mark Skills is asking Christian, is there a way to recharge your mitochondria? Now, you've mentioned how people with the Lyme's have got mitochondria damaged. Yeah. Running at uh, semi-capacity. You can recharge?
1: Yeah, fortunately, uh, short of having a genetic condition where your mitochondria were damaged from birth, Uh, Most of these things are functional problems. So a lot of it's done nutritionally. So we know that nutrients like CoQ10, uh, carnitine, B6, magnesium, uh, NAD, these nutrients have a lot of research behind them in terms of rebuilding the mitochondria. Uh, We've got some good research out of Germany on PEMF devices, uh, post-electromagnetic frequencies in terms of cellular repair mitochondrial repair. Yes. So I think there's a lot of different ways we can do it, depending on what you have access to. But the nutrients are really easy. Uh, again, they're pretty much accessible anywhere. And I've had good success of helping uh, with mitochondrial issues just with CoQ10, Carnitine, B6, Magnesium.
0: Great. Carmela Walker's bounced back to us and with an answer with regards to the um, the aspirin. Um, yeah. She says she has several... Um, clients with gout and other fungal problems and a few folks with prostate cancer and they found great results from prescribed aspirin that must be the low dose aspirin and um so that's that's quite um that's a new one that i've learned i didn't realize aspirin was effective against fungal problems yeah very very good but of course as you state it's got its other issues as well and uh, gastro problems
1: Excessible. Well, I'm looking at her comment. I mean, her point. Yeah, aspirin's really cheap. <laughs> it's very <laughs> inexpensive, and uh, yeah, I'm assuming it's the uh, the child or the yeah the baby aspirin. Uh, I, I would imagine you wouldn't need very much to accomplish that goal uh, anyway. So that's uh, that's really interesting. I've never tried it. I may have to try it with some people and see how it works.
0: Yeah, and it's and it is cheap, so it's, Yeah, and as it's, if uh, for a drug, it's relatively safe. I suppose if you don't take it for too long term, to, um, you know. Yeah,
1: well, I said I've had some people, you know, mostly for cardiovascular disease that have been on baby aspirin, and usually they're on it for many, many years, uh, and I've seen them develop, you know, stomach ulcers and things that they tell you, you're not supposed to happen with the low dose aspirin. Uh, mm. Again, I think everyone's just different. But okay. again, if you've got someone who's got these chronic health issues, and uh, if you're finding it's working, you know, great, yeah, it's cheap, it's easy, and you can find it anywhere. So why not?
0: Okay. Um, well, we've got. This is, these are the salmon I love and I get the questions pouring in, so there's no awkward pauses during, during the conversation. now. <laughs> um, Monique Cagnon has asked the question uh, Would you suggest coenzyme Q10 uh, to help your mitochondria and the uh, cellular oxidizer?
1: Yeah. Oxygen? Yeah, and it's really interesting. You know, when you look at some of the research on uh, Lyme, uh, because of how the mitochondria get affected, you sometimes have to use really high doses of it. You know, I think when I was in uh, naturopathic school, we talked about using like 100, 200 milligrams. You can actually use up to 1,200 milligrams of CoQ10. So I think depending on the extent of the mitochondrial damage, I usually start people at 100 milligrams and then slowly take them up by 100 milligrams as they tolerate it. Uh, I rarely see any kind of negative side effect. You don't usually get a lot of GI problems from it carnitine is different. If you start going up on carnitine, you can get uh, gastrointestinal distress and sometimes uh, it'll lead to diarrhea and this weird fishy odor that you get coming out of your skin. Uh, okay. So the carnitine's a little bit different, but CoQ10, yeah, you can go up to 1200 milligrams a day, divide it up. Just be careful with CoQ10. as you start stimulating their mitochondria, it'll stimulate them. And if they take their CoQ10 late in the day, it'll keep them from sleeping. So just make sure if you're going to give them CoQ10, you kind of load early in the day, not That's interfere with fun. their sleep.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, Amanda Litcher is um, asking, is it important to supplement with probiotics while treating with herbs? Before this conversation, I drank a probiotic. And this must be why she's asking this question.
1: (laughs) No, that's actually a great question. And yes, I do. Uh, Because, you know, herbs, anything that has a potential to kill bugs can, you know, lead to killing off some of your normal flora. So yes, I do supplement with probiotics, even when they're on herbs just to make sure that we're covering the bases and not accidentally killing off some of our good guys. Okay.
0: And because we charge, we charge per question, she so you managed to ask two questions in one. Can herbs kill off beneficial gut bacteria? That's a good question. Yes. Too.
1: Okay. Yeah, they can. Okay. You can't kill the bad guys without killing some of the good guys. It just doesn't work that way.
0: Right, right. But we don't
1: get the same level of die-off with herbs that you get with antibiotics. So that's the nice thing. And I've done stool testing, looking at repeat samples while people are on herbal therapy. And I really see very little shift in their microbiome, where in antibiotics, we will see a huge shift. So Mm -hmm. the the damage to the good guys seems to be fairly nominal. It's almost like there's a wisdom to our own bacteria that recognize plants as being something good for us. And yet the bad bacteria see it as being bad. I don't know. In my mind, that's the story I tell, but uh, clinically, again, I, I see that herbs don't really disrupt the gut too much, in most people anyway.
0: Great. Okay, Mandy, I know you think you got away with it, but we'll be sending the bill in the mail. Okay, uh, let's see. Any you know, other questions coming through? We've uh, asked about the pomerthrum. Um, Jodie Mitchell's asking the question Do you have any thoughts on intravenous ultraviolet light? And I th- uh, love that, actually, um, in, uh, laser lights. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so uh, again, I haven't had a lot of people, again, here uh, where I'm at anyway, we don't have a lot of practitioners doing it. Again, my, uh, I'll say, very limited experience is, again, sometimes people feel good while they do the therapy. I have not heard about good long-lasting effects from it. So as a short-term symptomatic relief, it seems to be helpful. Uh, But to be honest, I I haven't seen it long enough to say that it's going to be something that's going to help cure Lyme. Uh, but certainly if it's available, I mean, it's safe. It's just a, a, you know, it's just a UV light. And if you've got a practitioner who offers it and it's not terribly expensive, I would try it.
0: But ultraviolet can be damaging to DNA, even at low levels. So you wouldn't want to have long treatment sessions, surely?
1: Well, yeah, I don't think the treatments are terribly long anyway. You know, your light is confined to a very small part of the the vein. Okay. So if you're talking about, I'm assuming you're talking about the UV, uh, uh, the IV UV light.
0: Yes,
1: uh, yes. Yeah, and so you can, you're exposing just a very small part of your body, so your I think cellular uh, damage is going to be very, very nominal.
0: Okay. Um, have you had any experience with laser light? Uh,
1: cold laser. Uh, I've used laser uh, more for musculoskeletal pain. Okay. Uh, I haven't used it. I won't say specifically for Lyme, but I've got patients that have had various you know types of arthritis and joint problems. Uh, lymphedema, and uh, I don't do it in my office. I have a clinic down the road that I refer out for uh, cold laser or low-level laser, and again, symptomatically, it seems to work well.
0: Great. And um, I haven't
1: used I-, I guess, specifically for Lyme.
0: Mark Skills, has passed. I commented um, ultraviolet um, intravenous didn't, it helped, but it didn't cure his problem. So that's interesting to
1: know. Yeah, that's kind of been my experience. I think people feel symptomatically a little bit better, but it doesn't get rid of everything completely.
0: Um, now, Carmen has passed a very long comment. Um, I haven't really got the time to read. so Carmen, But she's saying that she's had a lot of experience with people over 20 years with gout and other fungal problems. And the aspirin, um, maybe the aspirin she's saying is removing the inflammation, causing good blood flow and, and just through normal body processes, clearing the fungus out. Um, she is a... Um, She's looking for, um, she's got a beautiful soul, has her She's on just a bit every week. And she's, um, she's got a group of people that, uh, that are, she's with a group of people that they uh, try and find affordable solutions. So That's great. She comes well, in. I think
1: her point, though, is really well taken, though, that, you know, blood flow is really important for getting well.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know,
1: the inflammation you get in blood vessels, whether it's caused by platelet aggregation or a vasculitis, you know, in your small blood vessels, Anything we can do to improve blood flow, I would expect is going to help because it's bringing oxygen, nutrients, the right immune cells to the right area. And we know particularly in the small blood vessels, they're just so prone to kind of getting shut off from the inflammation that uh, it's just hard for the the body to repair. So, you know, again, whether you're using, you know, baby aspirin, whether you're using lumbrokinase, whether you're using PMF, exercise does it. I mean, anything we can do to improve blood flow. uh, I see someone talked about Biomat. Uh, I love the Biomat. Uh, We use that in our patients too. It's a really, again, easy, inexpensive way to get blood flow going. It's basically like a mini sauna. Uh, I love sauna therapy as well. Sauna is one of the best way to help your body detoxify, particularly infrared sauna. So, uh, colon hydrotherapy is another one we use a lot of, and I've had patients with Lyme where nothing worked and they did one colon hydrotherapy session and they felt remarkably better. So, you know, we didn't really get much to talking about detox, but Again, that's another big part, I think, of getting people well, is starting to get their detox pathways moving along so they can get rid of all this stuff that's kind of holding them back.
0: Absolutely. And Mark Skills, that answers your question about um, the um, ultraviolet and, um, intravenous and the biomats and infrared sauna. So that we can, we can cross that one off the list. Now, we're getting close to the end. I'll just squeeze in another um, question, another one from Mark Skills. Mark, you've done fantastic this week. Um, Bartonella. A big one. Yeah. How do you treat that? Is it long? The same?
1: Well, you know, the nice thing about the herbs is that they kind of, uh, I, actually, I was at a conference a few weeks ago with Dr. Lee Cowden, and you might be familiar with his protocol. And uh, he kept talking about these herbs being keep herbs. He kept saying these are keep herbs. And finally someone asked, him, what do you talk about keep herbs? He goes, well, it kills everything except people. And I'm like, oh, I like that. So these are things that have antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral, antiparasitic, you know, it kind of goes after all these, you know, bad pathogens that create yeah. problems. So, you know, most of the herbs that I use, uh, you know, they work against Lyme, they work against Bartonella, they work against Babesia, Erlichia, Anaplasma, Rickettsia. Yeah. So we're kind of covering the bases of all those different, you know, co-infections. So I really don't, I don't change a whole lot with Bartonella. Uh, If it's Bartonella by itself or Lime Plus Bartonella, and I found the same herbal protocols kind of work the same.
0: Okay, now Christopher Christopher James wants to get the prize for the last question. I'll, I'll grant it to him, Christopher. He asks, do you use cannabis oil, CBD, for treatment?
1: I do actually. And I love uh, CBD oil. I've had tremendous success with it for it's anti-inflammatory. You know, a lot of of patients, they don't sleep well, they've got anxiety. So it's got very broad application. I also happen to live in a part of the United States now where, you know, marijuana is legal. So people here can actually get THC in addition to the CBD. But even prior to that, I've been, I've been using CBD oil and uh, I've had great success. You know, it's got an excellent safety profile, Ah, uh, the the company I work with, you know, again makes a liquid where you can just do drop doses. Yes. So you can titrate people very slowly to find out what they tolerate and what works well for them. Uh, other than it being a little bit pricey, uh, I find that clinically it works really well for a lot of my yes. patients, and I probably have, I probably have two hundred, three hundred patients on it right now. So it's uh, it's good stuff.
0: It's a shame it's got that stigma, you know, because um, you know that oil is so healing but this took you know a few or a little bit more than a few (laughs) recreational people to (laughs) to ruin it but at one time it was the um it was a turn to oil wasn't it for for many maladies
1: yeah, well, you know, yeah, you're right. The, the stigma behind it, unfortunately, is, is uh, unfortunately, well, it is what it is. And again, here in the United States, anyway, you know, we've had a war on drugs for, you know, 50 years that we've lost terribly. But this is a plant that has so much a capacity. In fact, I just saw last week, the drug company is now coming out with a prescription CBD uh, medicine. <laughs> so I think the drug company wants to get their claws into the market because oh, they, they see how become... much money they can make. But we've got so many good companies now that make high-quality CBD oil, and it's got so much good clinical application that uh, I think it's it's, it's it's got some great use.
0: Great, great. Well, in closing, I'd like to ask you, um, now you've got the book behind you, The Lime Solutions. Do you have any other reference materials or websites that I can turn the audience to?
1: Um, uh, well, certainly if people uh, want to go to my website and sign up, we, uh, we have regular newsletters, postings on social media. So all of my social media links are through the website. And uh, we'd love people if they're interested just to kind of follow me. And uh, we're trying to put out a lot of, you know, high quality material that's you know beneficial to people. Uh, so if you just go to darreninglesnd.com, that's me. And um, we'd love for people to follow us if they're interested.
0: Okay. I'll ask for my team in China to put a link onto the video so people can just click. It makes it easier for them.
1: Perfect. And comes,
0: um, yeah, your book as well on uh, Amazon, The Lime Solution.
1: Yep, The Lime Solution, and uh, it's available on Amazon or really through any major book retailer.
0: Written by the man we're talking to right now, Darren <laughs> Ingalls. Thank you so much for coming onto to the show. It's been really enjoyable. The, the really great seminars are the ones that, End too soon. We're a little bit overboard, and it's a shame to <laughs> pull the plug now. But it's been fantastic talking to you. I love the information you've given. I really like the, your attitude too. The, how, not you know, you've got you're concerned about price as well. You want to have something that people can afford, and that rings a bell with me. That really does strike a chord with Making So, <laughs> I, you know, I I really like people with that kind of attitude because you've got your heart in the right place. So thank you so much for accepting the invitation and having this interview.
1: Great. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You have a great evening. All right. You too. Good night. Bye-bye.